Welcome into another episode of the Musketeer Report podcast. Paul Fritschner, Rick Broing with you. Today is Monday, February 12th. Xavier sits at 13 and 11 overall, 7 and 6 in the Big East. They are coming off a win over Villanova last week, last Wednesday night, 56 to 53. Then over the weekend on Saturday afternoon, a loss to Creighton, 78 to 71 at the Cintas Center. Xavier was trailing by 20 at one point in that game, but came all the way back, had a chance toward the end, trying to cut the deficit down to a one possession game, just couldn't get over the hump. Xavier's now ranked 42nd in Ken Palm as we sit here today, 52nd in the net. They're 10 spots away from that at-large cut line, according to Bracket Matrix, Rick, and a big week upcoming for the Musketeers going on the road. It's a quad two game now after what happened to Seton Hall on Sunday against Villanova. They've dropped down to 76th in the net, which means it is a quad two game, but they're right there on the cusp. That'll be in South Orange Wednesday night. Big week for the Musketeers to pick up a road win, but then they go into their bye week, so just the one game this week. We will start with the news out of uh, Xavier, the injury news, the Jerome Hunter uh, Achilles injury that he suffered last Monday in practice. Uh, He tore it just uh, in practice on Monday afternoon, right after we recorded the show, probably two or three hours. How weird was that? Because we were talking about the future of the front court, talking a lot about him coming back next year and what it meant for him to be back in practice and all of those things. And then within hours, we get that news. I mean, it's, I'm smiling as I'm saying that because it, it it's crazy how that all worked out. But I mean, it just uh, just such a terrible, terrible thing for Jerome Hunter. Yeah. So he had surgery. I was told that he had surgery on Friday. Everything went well. There was no updated uh, timetable for return or anything like that. It's still just at Jerome's pace. However, best he is able to work back from that injury. Nothing was updated after the surgery or anything like that. So we're just working off of whatever Jerome is able to do and however best he is able to come back from that injury. But he did have the surgery on Friday and now he looks forward to at whatever point he is able to come back, if he is able to come back uh, next season. But I think the biggest question that this leaves us, because we haven't podcasted since his injury, is where this leaves Xavier and how it impacts Xavier with the transfer portal opening up in just about 50-some days, 60 days here. It's it's right around the corner. The season is coming to an end in the sense of, of March Madness. It's wild to say, but it's February 12th. And you're starting to think about some of those things that are going to be around the corner looking ahead to next year. So, Rick, in your mind, how does this injury affect it? Because the way that I look at this, it's really intriguing to me to see how this coaching staff is going to handle this injury because there's so many levels to it. Do you trust that Jerome is going to be able to get back maybe by the start of conference play this season? We've seen a lot of players that have uh, suffered this injury and then they never look the same again in college. I think it's unfair to compare this to Justin Moore's injury because a lot of people have been saying, well, Justin Moore doesn't look the same this year. What people might be forgetting is that Justin Moore also had a knee injury this year that he's working his way back from too. So it's not apples to apples with Justin Moore. Well, and Justin Moore looked Go good ahead. last year after he came back from his Achilles injury. So he did. It, it, that, he's really yeah, the wrong example yeah. to, to use if you're looking for a negative example for sure. But yeah. Um, Paul, the biggest thing in terms of what this means for Xavier, I think, first of all, we'll start with the the fact that Jerome plans on coming back from everything we've heard. Uh, Sean Miller said uh, in his announcement when he confirmed the next day on Tuesday that he had injured it in practice, he said, we expect him to come back. He plans to come back. So that is everyone's intention. 
at the same time, we talked about it in last week's show that while you have this this element with Zach Fremantle and Jerome Hunter coming back, I don't know how much you can just be reliant upon the fact that they're going to be back for sure. And and more importantly, that they're going to be the same guys that you're expecting to be or or that they've been at different points in their career when they were at their best. And now this just adds another layer to that. And I think what it all adds up to for Xavier is that you're going to have to find some more insurance this year in the offseason. And I don't think they would have entered this offseason without looking for more front court help, especially after what we just witnessed this past week with the front court play against Villanova and Creighton. But this only solidifies that even more, that the options going into next year are, I mean, questionable at best. If, if In terms of a reliability standpoint, I think we all believe that Zach Fremantle and Jerome Hunter can play, but it's just a matter of if they can get back to 100% and stay healthy. Yeah, it leaves a lot of question marks to try and fill because, do you, like you said, do you plan on them being back and you go full go for it in the Big East season? Do you plan as if they're not going to come back? There's so much, so so much minutia to this that I, I I don't really know. This is a really tough spot for the staff. This whole off season is really going to be difficult, and the way this is set up with the front court, especially, you have so many bodies. And there is some promise there with the different young guys that you have, but there are a lot of young guys. And I don't know that you can have all of them back on this roster. And you have Zach and Jerome who seem like really great pieces if they can return to form, but how reliable upon that can you be? And now, I mean, let's face it. You also have the NIL factor to add up in all of this. And those guys are going to demand some NIL money to keep them around. And so you have to to factor that in when you're thinking, Hey, we want to go out and try to upgrade our talent at this position too. Well, how much money and resources from the NIL perspective can you allocate to your front court? So all of that is going to make it a really interesting off season. And I will say, Paul, I mean, how we cover this sport has definitely changed, especially in terms of 24 seven sports and what, I do at Musketeer Report. I mean, it used to be so much about preps recruiting. And this time of year, we'd be talking about all the high school recruits for 2025 that they're going out to see and that they're bringing on visits and how important that is. And if you're on the message board right now, you'll see that like we're not talking a ton about 2025 recruits. We talked about a visit or they had this past weekend and we'll get more into that. But even he could reclassify to 2024. And the reason for that is because it's changed so much. You're so much more reliant from from, from year to year upon the transfer portal and what the guys on your own roster are going to do in terms of their decision that there's just a lot to figure out before you can be looking at high school prospects a year ahead of time. And so I say all that to say, we are going to cover this transfer portal in a different way this year, too. I think, you know, maybe a little bit more live streaming, stuff like this, more regular yes. shows to keep up with the day-to-day information that's coming out during transfer portal season. It's really going to be the biggest time of the year, I think, for college basketball going forward. Rick, I need to plug in my laptop, but while I'm doing that, I got to ask you a question. Just straight up, point blank. If you were this coaching staff heading into this offseason, or even right now knowing what you need, if you were in Sean Miller's shoes, how would you handle the Jerome Hunter injury and what you would want to do going forward with this front court? Well, I think it, obviously there are so many different parts to that, not just with the Jerome piece, right? I mean, it, it all, you got to factor it all together. But in terms of what the Jerome injury means is, I think there's no way that you can go into next year looking at him as a starter for you. And that's no slight at Jerome, but I just don't, 
really believe that he's going to be ready 100% by the start of the season to be a starter, to be playing starter-like minutes for you. So I think it starts with that. Is you can't rely on Jerome to be a starter. Maybe he's a piece at some point next year. Maybe he recovers and you get into the middle of the season and he's back to being more of a starter-like player for you. That would be a best-case scenario, in my opinion. I don't see looking at him as a go-to guy early on. So I think that's where I would start with it. You've got to be able to to have a, a starter at that forward spot. Maybe you feel like that's Zach Fremantle and you'll have another center, or maybe your your plan is Abu Usman is still going to be your starting center and Zach Fremantle can start at the forward spot for you. Um, but I would feel much more comfortable if you went out and got a bona fide starter for the center position and then you kind of figured out things from there. I, I think that's where I would start with this because in the worst case scenario, I think you can slide down a a wing like a Desmond Claude or a Dalen Swain to that forward spot like they've started to do already this year. And I think you can get by with that if you have the right player at the center position. Now, that's much easier said here on February 12th than it is done when we get into the transfer portal when it opens up because every team in the country as we saw last offseason, is going to be looking for a talented center, and there just aren't that many of them out there. All right, let's move on to talking about some bracketology. Xavier splits the week last week, picks up a win against Villanova, which right now as we sit here sits as a quad two win and then loses a quad one opportunity against Creighton. I mentioned that Xavier's sitting at 52nd in the net right now. The win over Nova, the loss to Creighton, to me, the win obviously builds up some uh, good momentum for you. I don't think the loss to Creighton is some death blow. Losing a quad one game is not going to knock you out of the tournament at like it would if you lost to DePaul or Georgetown at this point in the season. But what it did do was it eliminated a, a significant resume building chance for you. And it also dwindled your chances of getting to that magic 18 or 19 win mark that a lot of people have talked about. So now you go into the rest of the season. There are seven games left in the regular season. Three of those seven games as we sit here are quad one games. Probably going to be four if Seton Hall can get their act together. They're right on the outside looking in. But let's just say it's three. Those quad one games would be at Marquette, at Butler, and then home against Marquette. So only one more at the Cintas Center would be a quad one opportunity. That would be against Marquette. What do you think this uh, last week did for Xavier's at-large chances, Rick? Well, I think you said it pretty much perfectly right there, Paul. It's it's not so much that you that was the death blow for your season, but all the margin for error is gone, right? I mean, you have to be at worst five and two down the stretch here, which means winning at least one of those quad one games you talked about, which, I mean, let's face like they probably need to win one of the Marquette games and also a win like at Marquette would be the signature win that you're looking for. So this all goes together because I see some people bringing up like, hey, they don't have a great signature win right now. It's like, well, yeah, but if they get to that win total that we're talking about 18 or 19, you probably are going to get that signature win down the stretch here, whether that be the uh, the game at Marquette or I mean, I don't know if you look at the game at Butler as a as a signature win necessarily, but it would be another quad one win on the road. So I think that would still be enough. I still look at the 18 number. If you want to get in the conversation, as I've been saying all along, I think 19 makes you feel really good. So we're talking about five and two or six and one down the stretch for this team. And this is like, I know some people are now saying, Oh, it's over. They have no chance. They're not going to go five and two or seven and one or six and one. You may be right. 
that's what I've been saying this whole time. That's why I've been saying it's like hard to talk about this team's NCAA tournament resume when they're just fighting to keep their head above water. They're not a very consistent team. It is going to be really difficult for them to go five and two down the stretch. But that's been the case for the last two or three weeks. Like it's been really difficult for a while. They dug themselves a big hole. So um, I don't see their, the, I don't think their chances changed much since last week, in my opinion. It, it's very much uh, odds are not in their favor. But if they play their best basketball at the right time, it's not out of the question. They could win any of these games down the stretch. They're all winnable for them, except maybe that game at Marquette. Xavier sits at 13 and 11, and it really is a shame that if Xavier had just won those two bye games and you're sitting here at 15 and nine, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. It would be a seeding question instead of a are you going to get into Dayton question. That's it. And we knew that at the time. I mean, we we said you can't lose two bye games at the Centos Center. If you're trying to put together an at-large resume, that just is what it is. I mean, or if you do, then you would have had to like beat Purdue or beat Houston or something like that in the non-conference, which this team just wasn't up to the challenge of doing, and, and understandably so. Um, so this is where they're at. But but like we've said, I mean, if they do catch fire and like if Quincy Oliveri and Trey Green are hitting shots or Dalen Swain is playing out of his mind as he continues to build confidence, maybe this team will get on a roll. And and in that case. The last seven games are not in, incredibly difficult. I mean, the game at Marquette is really the only one that stands out is like they don't really have a good chance going into that one. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the front court. We, we've talked about the, the front court as it relates to next season with uh, Jerome Hunter's injury, but let's talk about the 2024 season. And Sean Miller, after the game against Villanova, ripped into a player worse than maybe I've ever heard a Xavier coach rip into a player before. He called Gitas Namiksha terrible after that game. And I think at one point said that he was wondering if Gitas was playing for Villanova. I mean, he, he, he was uh, not mincing words after that game um and then he talked about abu usman the rest of the front court having problems against creighton needless to say with the way that ryan kalkbrenner played 12 for 14 from the field 28 points dunk after dunk after dunk front court did not have a good week no it was it was brutal and this has been an issue for this team the entire year paul i mean even if you go back to the bye games that we were talking about well really more so the oakland game than the Delaware game. The Delaware game was kind of more the backcourt that got torched a bit, but uh, the front court in the Oakland game was terrible. And it's been a struggle really throughout the entire season. Um, I think it's just more glaring when you go up against Creighton and you have a seven footer and Ryan Kalkbrenner, but you also have their perimeter weapons that they have. And you've got things like Gitas trying to chase guys around screens, which he clearly is not comfortable doing. We've talked about that multiple times during the video breakdowns with Trey Scotty. So he's getting lost on that. And then you're getting bullied inside because your post defense isn't tough enough or strong enough. And uh, if Abu doesn't play well, which he didn't in the Creighton game, this front court is really, really bad defensively. I mean, they just, they really have offer no resistance outside of Abu when he's playing his best. And as Sean said, Abu was not good. He just didn't have it in this uh, Creighton game. And so it really left Xavier in, in a tough spot in terms of the front court defense. Now, I'll be honest, like I'm watching this Villanova tape, you know, after the game, I'm going through some of the yeah. clips that this, some of the stuff they ran on offense. And Paul, it's like, I don't know how anyone guards some of the stuff they're doing when you have the shooters that they have at the forward position and you run that pick and roll with a guy like Kalkbrenner, who's so long that you can just lob it up to at the rim like that. I mean, genuinely like when they're playing like that, 
you wonder how they ever lose a game. They look like one of the best teams in the country. And so I think that just kind of tells us one where Xavier's talent level is this year. They're, they're definitely below some of these other teams in the big East. And it's a, it's a noticeable difference. And then two, I do think you caught Creighton playing one of their best games of the season. They looked really good in that matchup. Yeah, they did. I, I think it's tough to judge on Saturday going up against a team like Creighton where after the game, Sean Miller talked very highly of Creighton. In fact, I, I'd say uh, if Sean talked for 10 minutes after that game on Saturday, probably five of those 10 minutes were just praising Creighton and how well they played. And look, it's hard to beat a team when they're firing on all cylinders like that. And yeah, Creighton was up 20 and Xavier cut it down and made a run at the end, but they just ran out of time. Xavier, at the, at the very end of the game, it just... They ran out of time and they had chances, but going up against Ryan Kalkbrenner time after time after time, it just, it was deja vu all over again. The pick, the roll, the dunk. Well, and and not all of that is like on the front court, right? I know everyone's like crushing the front court, but part of it is like, again, you're one, you're worried about getting out to their shooters. So there's no tag on the roller. Sometimes the big man's getting caught in no man's land for sure. We heard Sean talk about that and go off on Sasha during the first game against Creighton. They had one of those inside the huddle moments where they were showing Sean yeah. screaming at Sasha for getting stuck in no man's land in his drop coverage. But not all of that is on the front court. Some of it is just on the overall defensive scheme and and Xavier's issues there. So uh, th- I guess the thing about this whole front court situation is it's not getting better this year. They just don't have the talent. I mean, offensively, this group offers you almost nothing. So it really puts a lot of stress on the backcourt, and that's not going to improve. And defensively, I think when Abu is at his best and he stays out of foul trouble, he gives you a chance against a lot of matchups, but Ryan Kalkbrenner isn't one of the best for him, and and he definitely didn't play very well. So I don't think it's going to get better this year. I think the only way it gets better is you either upgrade with better talent next year via the transfer portal or recruiting, or... You know, guys like Sasha and Lazar, a real offseason in the weight room and a real offseason where they have time to break down the entire system, learn it from ground zero and, and build up throughout throughout the entire offseason. They could come back as completely different players. So uh, I think that's what you're really looking to as a Xavier fan in terms of how does this get better for next year? I didn't think Lazar looked terrible on Saturday defensively, at least. He's making improvements, right? I mean, the, the problem Lazar has is when he looks bad, he gets like thrown out of bounds or he goes like sprawling and rolling around on the ground or something. He's just completely out of the play and it's so noticeable. If he could just be a little more solid during his bad moments so it doesn't, it's not so glaring and noticeable for everyone and the coaching staff, I feel like he may stay in the game a little bit longer sometimes. But I agree with you. The last few games, he has shown a little bit more wherewithal and understanding on the defensive end. And with his length and athleticism, he can he can give you something on that end because of his physical tools. So how much do you think Rick, and we've talked about it a little bit, but how much do you think that this will push Sean Miller towards relying on a a smaller lineup, like uh, putting Dalen Swain or Desmond Claude down there at the four? Yeah, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of that. I mean, it's clear that Dalen is getting better and better and more confident. The only issue you have there is I know a lot of people are like, well, just play Dalen there pretty much permanently he's having breakdowns too on the defensive end. He's still missing some things. Now he's making a whole lot more plays for you. And those stand out when he goes and makes a play, but there are still things within the, the system and like when they're off ball stuff more. So, you know, like when he's not guarding the guy one-on-one when it's off the ball, 
reads and different screening actions that he's getting lost on when he's chasing guys occasionally. So he's getting better, but it's not all the way there yet where you can just say, let's start Dalen and play him as many minutes as possible at the forward spot. Yep. All right. Uh, let's move on. Talk about Villanova and that in, in particular, the last possession against Villanova, because boy, was it a disaster for the Wildcats. But I want to ask you, Rick, how much of it was good defense by Xavier versus how much of it was poor execution by Villanova? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a little bit of both here, right? And I guess we'll start with the play call, which I, I should have had the video ready here. But the play call was essentially just you're taking Brendan Hawson, who's a smaller shooter, not the best athlete in the world, kind of trying to run a, a slip screen action on the backside where he caused a little confusion. And then he runs through an elevator screen off to the right wing. And Xavier knew that was as soon as like they saw what was coming, they knew you're trying to get Haas in a three. So you're just sprinting through that, busting up the screen, which Davion McKnight did a good job of and staying with him. So he doesn't get a clean look. That was the initial part of the play. And after that, it completely broke down there from there for Villanova. I don't know if they had another action that they're supposed to run off of that. It looked like Eric Dixon was maybe looking for someone else to start coming from the top of the key. And it never happened. Um, and, and after the game, Kyle Neptune said that there was, a second option for the play, though he declined to go into what that actually was. But then from there, you basically just got a two-man game between How Hawson, who's not a good creator off the dribble, and Eric Dixon, who is a six-foot-eight big man, and, and he can shoot a little bit from the outside, but again, not going to create anything. It really went nowhere. Now, I give Abu Uzman a lot of credit because he made a couple of good reads there to stay out and contest any perimeter jumpers, not go with the cutter once he got switched and everything. He realized, hey, they can only hurt us with a three-pointer here. We've really got to stay out on the perimeter and guard the three. And so he had a good read there. It was good defense by Xavier. I don't want to take anything away from Xavier. They understood what was coming. They read it, and they, they executed well. But, Paul, to not get a shot in that situation... That's about as bad as I've ever seen. 18 seconds left. That's just, it can't happen. Well, here, there's so many things that you can do if you're Villanova, and not one of them includes not getting a shot off. I mean, you could drive straight to the basket, which is what I think a lot of people thought they would do. Just just go downhill, get to the basket, force Savior to go to the free throw line, make some free throws, and extend the game. I'm always the proponent that you take the three, but even with 18 seconds left, when the broadcaster constantly says, well, you don't need a three here, you can take the points. You always need the three. I'm here to tell you, you always need the three when you hear the broadcaster say that. But with 18 seconds, that's a lot of time because you can come down, maybe Xavier misses one free throw. Then you only need two. Maybe you take the three for the win. It's, instead of just dribbling around and not getting a shot off. And oh, by the way, they weren't even looking to get a shot off at the end. It's not like Eric Dixon had the ball and he was dribbling and then oh, with half a second left, he realized how much time was left and then took a shot that was, you know, a half a second late. You remember Karim Cantor in the 2018 Big East Tournament against Providence. He took a shot that went in, but it was a half a second after the buzzer. Most of the time in this situation, somebody on the court's counting it out, the bench is counting it out, whatever. And I know it's on the road. I know you're not in your home environment where you have the right. whole crowd counting it out. But still, the, the bench or somebody on the team needs to be aware enough to say at least – at least look toward the basket and like maybe angle your body so it kind of looks as if you want to throw the ball at the hoop. Do something. But he don't was going pass to reverse it. Laterally. Yeah, he was reversing it back to the top of the key as time expired. Yeah, don't don't reverse the ball laterally. So I was taking a video from my angle on the baseline, 
And when Austin came off that screen, I thought Xavier was in a good position. And, and to your point about Abu Usman, I thought he did a fantastic job because you could tell Austin maybe wanted to try and like jump into him to draw a foul, but Abu was just straight up. That would have not worked out for Villanova unless a, a, a crazy shot would have gone in. But with about five seconds left, with the way that Xavier extended out on Eric Dixon, once he got the ball, you knew he wasn't going to get a shot off because he had no clue how much time was left. He had no idea. And that's the second time in three weeks that Xavier did something that they hadn't done defensively throughout the game, whether it was against Georgetown, bringing that second guy to the ball, or now against Villanova, that you get that defensive stop at the end. And in both situations, if you go back and watch the video, Ed Cooley and Kyle Neptune, you can see just the life getting drained out of their face when they realize what's happening and they're powerless to stop it. Except, though, by the way, they weren't powerless to stop it because they still had a timeout left. I, I, like, yeah, that's the thing. A lot of times people are like, oh, call a timeout, call a timeout. It's like, well, you don't know how things are going to play out. It's bang, bang, whatever. But in the, to your point, there's 18 seconds left with this one. You run the initial action for Hassan, and it's not there. You know at that point the ball is not going to one of your best creators. The play has been blown up. There's there's nothing happening here. Call the timeout with eight seconds left. You can still run a full another set at that point. Like it's you still have plenty of time. I don't understand what Kyle Neptune was doing. Now, that being said, I he's taking so much heat for this, and rightfully so, because it is like a one of those moments that when you lose your job eventually, people point back to. They remember, remember when he didn't even get a shot off in the end of the game against Xavier like that's one of those types of moments it's a big deal so I'm not saying he shouldn't be getting a lot of heat for it but at the same time he can't take the shot for his players if you're a ball player you've been in end of game situations it's chaotic it doesn't go ideally the drawn up play doesn't always work if you're a player if you're good enough to be at freaking Villanova on a division one basketball scholarship you have to put a shot up in that situation yeah. you don't go to reverse the ball back to the top of the key as time expires and act like you've never played in a basketball game before you're a high major talent. I mean, be a basketball player, man. You got to get a shot up there. I know you're not open, but I, 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 that just like he's taking so much heat for this, and 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 maybe the fact that his players don't understand that they should be taking a shot in that situation, they got to force something up there. Uh, maybe that's on him to some extent too. I guess I don't know. Maybe like you've you've got them thinking way too much. I, brother, I don't know how that happens. Brother. It could be an air ball. You could throw the ball in the student section. Throw the ball and hit me in the face. Do something that at least gets the ball toward the basket and not east and west. Yeah, I, I just like I, I you got to put some of the blame on the players in that situation to not put a shot up at all. You had 18 seconds. I know the play didn't work, but throw something at the backboard and just pray at that point. Yeah. All right. Justin Moore, only three points in this game. One three. And that's and that's part of the situation, right? Because like a, a lot of time, like had you told me at the beginning of the year that Villanova's in this situation at Xavier, who was going to be their go-to guy in that play, who would your answer have been to start the year? Yeah, Justin, Justin Moore. Moore, right? Six five and create a little bit. He can shoot, but he is just offering them nothing. What do you have? Four points in this game? Three, three hit one three. That was it. Yeah, I mean he was a complete non-factor, and they just clearly realized that at this point. So it's it's sad to see because he was a guy that I thought was going to be an NBA player. And looking at him this year, I mean, maybe he's still recovering. Maybe he'll come out on the other side and, and he'll, he'll play really well when he's in summer league or something with an NBA team. But it, it just looks like he's completely lost all his powers. Yeah, it it it, it just 
coming off that knee injury. It's just been too much. Also, I will say if he's six five, I could have been Shaq. I mean, <laughs> what are we doing? What are we doing here? Come what, on, what are man. you doing? three? I'm six three and I can see over his hair. What are we doing? Well, when did you right. go back to back with Justin Moore next time? Uh, XC Villanova. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, anything else from the the one other thing that I think a lot of people talked about, and we don't have to spend a ton of time on it, but uh, the scene after the game got a ton of national attention with Kyle Neptune. The Philly media was blowing him up. He came in, made a statement, didn't take right. questions, walked out. Uh, Twitter started blowing up because it, it was a, it seemed kind of like a miscommunication. It, maybe it was partial frustration into that. And then he came back. I'd never seen that. I mean, in, eight years of being around the press conferences. You've been around a lot longer than I have. I've never seen a coach come back in 50 minutes later and say, does anybody have any additional questions? Yeah. So what happens is he was pouting. He knew it didn't go well for him. He came in, he immediately came into the media room. No one was even down there yet to answer questions. I guess he gave like a 15 second statement. It sounded like, and then none of us were there. I mean, I like, I I didn't go straight into the room. I I talked to a couple of people on the way, but I wasn't like I was waiting around forever. And I saw Adam Baum who walked in way before I did. I mean, two or three minutes way before in, in this situation. And even he, said he hadn't seen it and Kyle was walking out and it, it just yeah it probably was a little bit of frustration built into no Philly media had traveled so there was nobody he knew he wasn't going to have to answer questions from or or at least wait around for the Philly media that was making their way down there so he comes in makes a statement then he went out into the hallway I think and maybe answered a, a question or two out there I don't know who would have asked him those questions but I think yeah, he I- did and then came back in like 50 minutes later and and talked well, to uh, Mike. Yeah, well, no, well, so the the initial part happens. He leaves the press room, and no one even knows it happened. Like we're not even down there. We get told yeah. once we get there, like, hey, he's already in and gone. And I'm like, no offense, but that's that's obviously uh, we just lost in terrible fashion. So I'm kind of being a sore loser move by him. I don't I don't care. It doesn't bother me. But like that's what it was because you know what the normal protocol is. You know the normal time that these things take. So going in there and being like, oh, no one's here to ask questions. It just must not be a press conference day. We're going to skip it is like, come on, you know, that's not realistic that we all know what happened there. So, which is fine. It doesn't bother me that I did that. But then afterwards, a few people tweet out that like, Hey, we're not going to have any answers here because Kyle Neptune already came and left. So then he starts getting crushed by Villanova Twitter. It's all happening in real time. So he and his SID then barge back into the media room and is like, who needs to talk to us? Who did we not talk to? We're getting crushed on Twitter. And like, he comes back, he talks to Mike Petraglia because he still wanted to ask him questions. I didn't really even care at that point. Like, so like, we're all going to say you should lose your job for that play. We all know what it is. I, I don't really think we, your, your answer isn't going to be that enlightening anyway. So I really didn't care, but yeah, I've never seen a coach come back into the press room like that and answer questions, but it was only because he was getting crushed on Twitter by his own fan base after people said that he wasn't there to, to answer for it. Yeah. All right. That's that. I just thought we should address it because it was all over Twitter. As soon as the game was over, uh, let's move into Saturday. JP, Makura uh, was in town. He was back. Uh, he's actually not playing this season. He's injured. So he's uh, taking the year off because of his injury. He was in town with his family. Um, his daughter's fiance was there. 
uh, everybody was in town for the 2024 Xavier Athletics Hall of Fame induction ceremony, which was on Friday night. I, I was uh, I was there. It was a great time being there. Chris Mack was there to give the uh, introductory speeches for both JP and Trayvon. Trayvon's family was there. Uh, Trayvon was still over in Italy playing. He couldn't make it back. He did send a uh, a pretty funny eight or nine minute. Uh, video message in that they that they played for everybody but uh it it was a great um it was a great night and i think it illustrated uh you know just a a lot of the things about jp i i couldn't tell um i was there with my fiance and i i looked at her laughing and i said jp's either going to get up there for 40 seconds and say thank you to thanks coach thanks family thanks xavier and and move on but he talked for probably eight or nine minutes too about just how much he appreciated the fans, how much he loved playing at Cintas. Um, and, and he mentioned that multiple times over the weekend. He mentioned that on the podcast. We did that with him and I, I thought it was really cool to see him back, see how much he cared. He was crying while he was out on the court uh, with his daughter when uh, he was introduced at halftime of the Creighton game. And uh, it, it, congratulations to him. It was a special weekend and, and Trayvon as well. Um, you know hall of fame is uh very deserved for the both of them so don't tell us the story but tease it for us what was the best story that he gave during the podcast the sean miller uh, if you're that. watching this a lot we we clipped it i'm gonna i'm gonna tweet it out here in a little bit it was a butler story um he, that he told about some of the butler fans and how they got his phone number uh before a game we clipped it it was an incredible story and i knew like some details of it because i remember it when it happened but i didn't remember everything and how it happened uh, but it, just the most classic jp mccura story of all times about 90 seconds we're going to tweet it out later this afternoon too but you can go sure. back and watch the whole episode uh but so, i yeah, i i, I thought that too, sean miller that's the latest uh, sean miller podcast episode by the way yes, with jp mccura yeah. so make sure to check that out yeah um but yeah, for, for the weekend, I mean, Saturday's game, 12.30, Big Fox, Tim Brando, Robbie Hummel, Hall of Fame induction weekend. It was the, I, I don't know what Xavier calls it, but like the salute to service, the the Armed Forces Day, um, and which, by the way, at the Hall of Fame induction, um, if you haven't read the story, Adam Baum went and wrote that story a couple years ago on Captain Phil Bucklew, who is the captain of Naval Special Warfare, also the founder of the navy seals that goes hand in hand um but he was a xavier hall of famer and he was uh inducted on friday night as well and that was a really really powerful uh moment of the night and then uh three representatives uh from the military were there on saturday to accept the award on behalf of him philip passed away so he they were there to accept the award on his behalf um a lot of things happening on saturday afternoon and I'll be honest, I will say it, it was a real shame that Xavier wasn't able to get the win on on such a special day like that. It just felt like everything was kind of converging toward a momentum-shifting Xavier win with everything going Xavier's way on Saturday as far as the outside noise was concerned and the things surrounding the game. But uh, the atmosphere was incredible. The first four minutes of that game where Xavier went up, whatever it was, 14-4, to 11-4, whatever it was in the first war of that game was to me at least uh, and i texted this to a couple of people that asked they said it was coming through on tv and i i got some text saying is this as, as good as it sounds on tv and i said yeah it's to me that was the best non-shootout atmosphere that i can remember at Cintas in a long long time it was a ton of fun and uh it was, it was a shame they, they they couldn't get it done 
And I, I hate the hyperbole with things like that. Like everyone, every time there's a new good atmosphere game, everyone's like, oh, that was the best since whatever. It's like that one really felt like it to me. I thought that yeah. place was rocking. It came across on TV. It felt super loud during like going to media timeouts early in the game when things were going well for Xavier. So I thought it was a really cool atmosphere. And like you lose the game. That stinks. That's unfortunate. And when you have a recruit on campus, like they had a 2025 center from New Zealand, uh, Julius. Halei Fanua? Halei Fanua? Sure. Go, we'll go with sure. that. We'll try that. Uh, sure. I have not talked to him yet. I don't know how you pronounce his last name. Um, but he was on campus. Talented guy. Potentially could move to the 2024 class. There are a couple other biggie schools that are really in there with him. We have a lot more information about him on the message board. But when you have a recruit like that on campus, you're trying to impress. You you want to try to schedule it for an, a game where you're going to have an atmosphere like that, obviously. And I don't think you could have gotten a better turnout from that perspective. I mean, the fan base was on fire for that game. Yeah, it really was. And and you're right. Sometimes you get caught in the moment as soon as the game ends, and you think, "Oh, it was such a great game. It was or it was such a great atmosphere." But really, on Saturday, I I, I can't remember a one that was as good as that. At least from my vantage point. I know sometimes I, I get a little. I, I'm, I have a little bit of a different view on that because I'm always standing five feet in front of the student section. So maybe it always sounds a little it louder. It always sounds it loud to you. Is. Yeah. It always, yeah, it, it always does. But, you know, I, I think that when you look at the crowd, I mean, con- they were constantly, you know, the, the lower bowl was on its feet for a lot of the game, especially once Xavier made their runs. I know being down 20, it's hard to really stay engaged and stay in the game. But, uh, yeah, to the fans' credit, I mean, Sean talked about it a lot after the game. and th- That's always one of the first things that Sean says in a post-game press conference or whether it's on the podcast or wherever it is that uh, he knows and appreciates the the fans and what they bring to the table in a game like that. But, uh, yep, Xavier not able to get it done on Saturday in front of that crowd, but still a couple of chances left uh, at Centos. I also think with, like, atmospheres, when you're, like, trying to measure that and gauge it, there's different levels to this like there's there's games where it was loud the entire game and it felt like the family's like super engaged since before the game started and this was one of those you know where it was like before yeah. the game everyone came in here with a lot uh, of juice they felt like this was a huge game for the program and then there are other games where maybe you don't expect it to be as big of a game maybe the crowd didn't come in like that but then there's those crazy moments and you get those loud roars at different points of the game and those are like sometimes just as impressive but it's different you know the one that always sticks out to me, Rick, I don't know if you read this game, but the East Tennessee State Trayvon game. Yeah. Were you yeah, there for that? Yeah, I remember that. Uh, yeah. I don't I, I, so I was still a student when uh, when that game happened and I was working that game from the press box that's all the way up in the top corner. And whenever I would do those games, it would always give me a, a much different perspective because you're above the crowd and you can see everything from that vantage point. And uh, I just remember because Xavier was down by what? I mean, 20 in that game, 18, whatever it was yeah, in that game, and then came yeah. it came all the way back to win and how electric that crowd was coming down the stretch. And it's tough for a bye opponent to be as excited and as uh, thrilled as that crowd was. And those are like the little moments that you think back on where you didn't go into that game expecting anything, you expected to win by 50, and it takes a, a last-second shot to win. There's a Georgetown game that's similar during Chris Mack's oh, tenure yeah. where they got down big in the first half and then came storming back with like an insane second half run. And it was like, it felt for like maybe 20 minutes straight. The crowd was just screaming at the top of their lungs during that run. And I'll, I'll never forget. I was like still on the court at the time, you know, all the, the or like sitting on the floor, sideline seats yeah. where they put the media at that time. And I just remember like, it felt like it was shaky. Like the scores table was shaking at different points of the second half because it was so loud in there. 
Yeah. Yeah. So Xavier, I mean, look, the rest of the season, there, there are still some chances back home, three home games left home against Providence next Wednesday, the 21st home against DePaul and then home against Marquette. So two real marquee games, I would say. And then you have that DePaul game that by God, you just can't lose. All right. Uh, Next up, Xavier Seton Hall, 7 o'clock Wednesday night, CBS Sports Network. Absolute disaster in the Fritchner household. Alta Uh Fiber has pulled the plug on CBS Sports Network. They can't come to an agreement with Paramount. So I have no idea. Wednesday night, I'm already sweating bullets about Wednesday night. Don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to fight through it, as all Warriors do. I will figure out a way uh, to watch this game on Wednesday night. Uh God, seven burners in the chat. Share your login information for Paul. Please, Somebody. God, yeah. find me a way. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Pirates after Seton Hall coming off that game yesterday? Oh, my God, Rick. I mean, talk about a response for Villanova on Sunday afternoon. They beat Seton Hall 80 to 54 in Philadelphia. Yeah, so uh, unfortunately right now, this isn't as a, as a quad two game for Xavier. Seton Hall dropped out to a 76 in the net, so quad two game that they, they might be able to play their way back in and make that a quad one game again for Xavier and make a little bit better opportunity here. But I guess the good news playing against Seton hall is it's the one team that Xavier matched up really well against. I felt like in conference play earlier this year. And really, why is that? Because Seton hall doesn't have a good front court either. So yeah. you, you match up pretty well with them from that perspective. It's going to be talented perimeter guys going against talented perimeter guys. And um, both teams are desperate right now. They're both right. You know, Seton Hall is probably even closer to that cut line than Xavier is. Maybe one of the last teams in or first teams out as things currently sit. Xavier, obviously not the the first four out or the next four out, but probably in the four after that group, somewhere between like uh, 12 and 16, maybe ish. So Xavier and Seton Hall have played three times since Sean Miller came back to Xavier. Two of those three times have been 20 point victories or more for Xavier. So it's, it's been a matchup that Xavier has fared well in over the last couple of years. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would, I would say I'd feel pretty good about this one as a Xavier fan, knowing you need it. But at the same time, I mean, this team playing on the road, it's pretty much, uh, pretty much anyone's guess how it's going to turn out. Right. Well, and you know, the other thing too, tough spots for both Creighton who hadn't lost three straight big East games since 2019. And they're coming off. a terrible not I don't want to say terrible losses in like a resume loss but like you had a chance an easy chance to win that game at Providence Devin Carter hits this crazy shot from the logo goes to overtime you lose it was a pink out at at Providence tough to win on the road I get it but like Creighton I don't want to say should have won that game very easily could have won that game at Providence they know they don't want to lose three in a row you go on the road you pick up a quad one win at Centos now Seton Hall coming off a 26-point loss to Villanova, has a chance to come back home in front of their home fans and right the ship a little bit. That's tough. That's not great spots for Xavier over the last couple of games as far as their opponents go. Yeah, no no doubt about it. So you get a look at the, the rest of the schedule here. This is from Bracketologist.com. Quad 2 at Seton Hall. Quad 2 at home against Providence. Then Quad 1 at Marquette. Quad 4 home against DePaul. Quad three at Georgetown, quad one at Butler, quad one home against Marquette. That's how they'll finish it off. Like we talked about, need to go five and two or six and one down the stretch to to have a chance to dance, really. 
Okay, uh, a couple of things. One's a hypothetical that I'm going to close the show with, but the other thing, just looking at Bracketology, there are a couple of websites. One, if you're watching on YouTube right now, it's just Bracketologists.com. That's a great tool. There's also the tool that I always like to throw out, and if I remember, I can put it on the message board here uh, soon. It's just the the bball.notnothing.net, and that's what projects the conference tournament standings. And I know a lot of people start like, they uh, they like to hop in the lab and uh, you know simulate the games the rest of the way. Um, it just at this point in the year, people people have opportunities to you know go in there and and kill some time. Uh, but Rick, I want to throw this. Oh, okay, yeah. So if you're if you're watching on YouTube, Rick's on that website right now. Um, Rick, I want to throw this out to you. I was talking with some friends about this the other day. Now let me let me make this very very clear. There is no world, there is no world where this would have happened, but we're in the clicks business and uh, we like to have some fun on this show. So I'm going to throw this hypothetical out to you. This lineup, theoretically, if everybody had come back and everything had worked out, could have happened. Colby Jones, Jack Nungy, Jerome Hunter, Zach Fremantle, Davion McKnight, and Quincy Oliveri. Those seven guys all on one team. Jack Nungy could have come back. Colby Jones could have come back. Jerome Hunter and Zach Fremantle could have been healthy. Quincy Oliveri and Davion McKnight in the transfer portal. There's no world where that happens. Colby was an NBA player. Jack was, uh, he had spent a long time in college. I'm not saying it would have happened. But they all had eligibility left and could have come back. Yeah. Think about that seven. The bigger problem there is, do you get Quincy Oliveri for sure if, you have Colby Jones coming back and Desmond Claude and Just you know what I mean like play my hypothetical Rick. <laughs> I'm willing to I'm willing to, but that's 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 where I go. I mean, yeah, if you no, have you all of those guys like, on the yeah. same roster, my goodness. Like, yeah, the, the offense would not have near the issues that they have operating in the half court. You know, I mean, like yeah. this team basically has to get all of its points by either scoring in transition or somehow manufacturing a three-point shot for Quincy Oliveri occasionally yeah. maybe Desmond Claude can get you to the free throw line or something like that, score in the mid-range a little bit. But in the half court, they're so limited with what they can do offensively. If you had that group where you've got Jack Nungy spacing at the top of the key with those high-low actions, you got to worry about Freeman all over the top. you got to worry about him in the short roll. You've got Quincy Oliveri stretching the floor. You've got Colby Jones and Desmond Claude both creating. I mean you'd have a lot of weapons, but that's, you know, that's, that's why college basketball is what it is. No one's able to keep rosters like that together for the oh, most yeah, part. I didn't even say Des Claude. I was, I, didn't even, I didn't even say Des Claude. Cause that was just the one that I was assuming. I was talking about those seven are the guys that are, you know, that had decisions or, you know, hurt or whatever that you, you'd throw in there. But yeah, Des Claude too. I mean, there's eight, that's a final four team right there. Yeah. Legitimately. I mean, that's a, no doubt you're looking to go past the second weekend with that group. That is a, a big time team with Sean Miller. Yeah. Coaching them. Unfortunately, right. that's not the way it went. Sorry, Xavier fans I'm... for torturing you with that. <laughs> uh, all right. That's all. I, I just yeah. had to have, have a, have a little fun there. Uh, Rick, any, any news notes, nuggets here to close the show. We do have a, uh, a couple comments here, a couple questions that we might be able to get to. I think we mentioned this from, from Matt, how much of a difference would it have made? Had we just won one of those Oakland or Delaware games? Um, yeah, if you, if you win both, then you feel much better about where you're at. If you win one of them, I think that makes a pretty big difference, Paul. I mean, that honestly, oh, yeah. only having one quad three loss as opposed to two. And the fact that they're both, it's just so glaring when you're looking through separation points for these teams that are on the cut line and you look at Xavier, you see 
two home losses to mid-major teams, like it feels like it goes even a bit beyond just the two quad three losses when you look at it on the resume, right? I mean, how it happened, like, I, I feel like that'll be factored in a little bit too. Yeah, I I think for sure. If you if you win one of those games, you're feeling a whole lot better. If you lose two or if you win both of those games, like I said, you're talking about seeding now. You're not talking about making the tournament. You're in the tournament if you win both of those games, no doubt about it. Um, I mean, I'm not saying you're a five seed, but you're a nine seed. You're an eight or nine seed, and you're not worrying about Dayton. You're not worrying about the bubble. That's it's just where you are at this point in the season. You also have to hope that Oakland doesn't drop down to a quad four game too. Your Norse yeah. didn't help us out on on that one the other night. That overtime. I mean, I've, I've been trying to tell you guys all year, Oakland isn't what you think they are, and Trey Townsend no. is not a high major player. But you guys won't listen to me. So, thought we'd made the whole episode. Uh, Creighton was Trey only says, one. Creighton yeah. was only one point oh four points per possession. Outside of dunks, thought the defense was hold its own. Creighton was not giving space on the perimeter. Felt the flow offense was stuck, and more sets could have helped. Yeah, I mean, but Troy, that's that's the point, right? Like Xavier has no wiggle room because they can't score on offense. So that's why when you're giving up dunk after dunk in the pick and roll, and it feels so hard to guard Creighton, even though you maybe are doing a decent job, that it's just it's brutal, man. It's like it's it's brutal to go through a, a year like this where you just don't have the talent level to function efficiently on the offensive end in the half court like you're laying out there and it puts so much stress on everything else like your defense and your inability to guard the pick and roll. Yep. Any other questions? Um, Noah says, tell me what you think about the lineup for next year. Point guard McKnight, shooting guard has to be a transfer portal shooter, small forward Claude, power forward Fremantle, Center, I believe we need a stretch five in the portal like Nunji. Well, I, I mean, I think that would be a, a good lineup, but that's that's the whole conversation here, right? Like, what are you going to do at the shooting guard position in the transfer portal? You got to find a big time player there to match what Quincy Oliveri is giving you this year. And then saying you need a stretch five in the portal like Nunji is great, but the problem is aren't a lot of Jack Nunji's in the transfer portal. And then Jack Nunji actually entered the transfer portal like we know it today, the the bidding war for him would have been significant in NIL dollars. So that it's just a little bit different than now as opposed to then and the way they got Jack Nunji when they got him from Iowa. I don't know that you're going to be able to find guys like that very easily now. Yep. All right. Um did, did Sean actually say he wants to get three to four new guys from Max? Yeah, Max, he did. I, I actually wrote about that on Musketeer Report. He mentioned it on his coach's show last week or the week before. Um, someone called in and said, what, what does it look like for next year in terms of new freshmen? And Sean said, we have one freshman coming in that's already committed in Jonathan Powell. He said there could be as many as three or four new faces, but he, he would only look at maybe one more freshman in addition to Powell. So Powell is one freshman. Could have two freshmen total, meaning one more in addition this offseason, and then definitely two or three transfers, it sounds like, is in the plans, according to Sean Miller. Yep. All right. Paul, anything else there? Nothing else for me, Rick. All right. I think that's it. What? Do you want to? No, we're not in the predictions business. Wednesday. <laughs> we're, de- we're definitely not in the predictions business. People we get upset. People get very upset with predictions, so we, we will not that's do right. that. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's get on out of here then. Thanks, everybody, for listening this week. I hope everybody liked the live. I mean, I, I hadn't really got a chance to see how many viewers we were pulling here on Twitter and YouTube and everywhere else. But, uh, yeah, thanks to thanks to everybody for watching and spending the lunch hour with us. If, 
this works, maybe we keep this going here for the next few weeks. Yeah, appreciate right. it, everybody. Thanks, Paul. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Talk soon.